Consider the following, and some of the results you will hardly believe. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Living Full Kombucha Podcast. Yes, you heard that right. The podcast has a new name. If this is your first time tuning in, this podcast was formerly known by the name Teacher Turn Alchemist. And this season, we've decided to make a big pivot and we are now rebranding this podcast to be called the Living Full Kombucha Podcast. So if you're curious, what is the Living Full Kombucha Podcast about? Well, for starters, hi, let's start with greetings. My name is Lydia and I own a kombucha business called Living Full Kombucha and it's located in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Before jumping into commercial brewing, I was a public school teacher for seven years teaching adults with disabilities in a transition program, and I taught independent living and vocational skills. And for the past two years, I have been pursuing a goal towards opening the nation's first inclusive kombucha taproom that welcomes, trains, and employs adults with disabilities into the brewing world. This podcast is basically what I deem my verbal journal, where I discuss my journey thus far, describing all the huge ups, a lot of downs that I have that really come along with any entrepreneurial journey, and I meet so many amazing people, especially you, my listeners, along the way. Although in my heart I will always be a teacher, I felt like Living Full Kombucha Podcast was a better fit for where I'm at right now. I chose this business name Living Full because the fermented beverages we create are truly living and our hope is that when you drink one of our beverages that you feel fully yourself and pursue the things in life that mean the most to you. Living Full represents optimism, vibrancy, and endless opportunities and living full or fully looks different for everyone and makes us who we are. We live fully by creating drinks that we are proud to share and creating an environment that welcomes neurodiversity in the workplace, which is why our motto here at Living Full is living drinks full of opportunities. And you're going to hear me, by the way, I interchange I for we or I say are a lot. I said that weird. R-O-U-R, are a lot. But really, it's just me currently right now in this business. I use terms like we and are because each day we are taking, I am taking, one step forward towards our inclusive taproom and another step closer towards welcoming more people on this team. So with that, welcome to the Living Full Kombucha podcast. And right now my arms are like outstretched wide like (laughs) ta-da. Welcome. So today I thought it would be fun to chat about what I wish I knew before going into a kombucha business. And I thought it may be appropriate as we just celebrated our first official year in business. Now, you might have heard me share earlier that I left teaching two years ago, but have just celebrated our one-year anniversary. Well, just like any business or a dream, there's a lot of planning. And let's be real, I didn't always think kombucha was the path for me to go on. And I spent a lot of that first year out of teaching, searching for what would be the best fit for me. And well, I'm really happy that I chose kombucha. And February 14th, I officially opened my doors, which really, there was no door at all. I was renting a commercial space. I was out of a pantry, (laughs) but I was selling online which right now we are just now past that one year mark. And I thought, hey, it would be really cool to look back at this past year in business. So as a teacher, I always like to chunk and make things easier to follow. Or really, maybe it's because I want to be a little gimmicky and get people to click on this episode. (laughs) You'll never know. But I titled this 10 Things I Wish I Knew Before Opening a Kombucha Business. 
Now, as I'm guessing, I, I feel like I'm going to have some new listeners. I hope I do. I can't wait to meet you. But I often will point out, and I'm just going to make this extremely clear, that I am not the end-all, be-all expert in this field. As you just heard me, I'm just a wee baby one-year-old, and this is my verbal journal. I've messed up, honestly, more times than I have succeeded, but I also feel called to share my experiences as a way to meet you as a fellow brewer, or really kind of like a cathartic way to share my thoughts. And maybe, just maybe, I might save you a dollar or two if you're thinking of going down this road. There are many, many, many ways in which to brew and grow a kombucha business, but it's podcasts like these that I myself would have appreciated hearing before jumping in, as I feel like there are very few kombucha resources out there, and I would like to think that by listening, just me as a newbie home brewer, I might feel a connection with the host and know that I wasn't the only one or maybe even have an aha moment, and that's really why I am coming on here and sharing on this type of platform. I'm basically asking for friends (laughs) and I'm certainly not above you on this great brewing journey okay okay let's go ahead and jump in so I always share what I am sipping on in each episode and today I am sipping on a dud of a shrub not to get all confusing I know my name is living full kombucha but I also make another product called a shrub drinking vinegar which is basically like an infused apple cider vinegar that you mix into drinks I love fermentation and a shrub is just that. And I felt that shrubs were a great addition to my business as they are full of opportunities. Do you get it? You you mix them into cocktails, mix them into mocktails, or my favorite, you mix them with a little bit of sparkling water. But real moment, I also started producing shrubs after I already named my business. And changing a business name is really tricky slash expensive. So I'm gladly keeping my name, but Who knows, for the future, if kombucha will stay in my name. But yes, you heard me. I am trying out new flavors, and new flavors really don't always work out. For this shrub, I tried a pear tarragon flavor, and I've been trying to get pears to work for a long time. I see a lot of other brewers using them, and I really just can't seem to nail down the right balance. And tarragon, I don't know. It sounded fancy, and I thought it would play up the pear, but it didn't. Oh, well. I won't sell this one, but gladly I'm going to drink it and I'm mixing it with sparkling water. So pretty good, but that's what I'm sipping on today. All right, let's go ahead and jump right into the top 10 things I wish I knew before starting a kombucha business. So I'm going to start off with number one, and I I tried to start off a little bit like earlier on in the business to kind of go in order, but I might jump around. But anyway, number one is inspectors are not out to get you. And when I mean inspectors, I am talking health inspectors. And this is more talking about the licensing journey of this process. Obviously, before you can sell your kombucha, there is a litany of things that you need to obtain in order to sell your kombucha and some of the things that are just coming to mind right now but there is a list and I've also gone over these in previous episodes but a HESAP plan for me a variance because I was fermenting and using fruit juices retail licenses and everything else you need to have certain things in place that need to get evaluated by an inspector. Here in Wisconsin, we have a kind of more like a county inspector, and then there's the Wisconsin inspectors that kind of go above them in a sense. And what I wish I knew about this part of the journey is that the inspectors aren't really out to get you. You know, going through school and things like that, not saying that I was a stickler teacher, but 
no, I really wasn't this way. But I always felt like when I was going through school that if I missed something, it's like, haha, minus points, minus points. Like it was just like a gotcha type of moment. But especially if you're producing a food or a beverage in my case, I feel like people in this business really want to see you succeed. And I found some really great people at both levels, at the county level and the state level, that were extremely helpful on getting exactly what I needed in my paperwork. I would submit, for example, a HESA plan, which is, it's an acronym that stands for the Hazard Analysis Critical Control Points, which if you want to look that up, there's tons of information online about this, something that you do have to have at least in the United States in order to produce kombucha. I created this HESA plan and I submitted it and I got rejected. And so at first I was like, oh crap. And I felt like it was all me having to try to figure this out. But really what it took was calling them and saying, hey, what did I miss? And they were glad to sit on the phone with me for, I would say, 30 minutes or so, telling me how I could change this word or add in this temperature control or, you know, edit, take this out. And that was so helpful. And I didn't realize that they were going to help me that much along the way. And so when I resubmitted it again, it wasn't like there was a track record saying, oh, here's Living Full Kombucha again. This is their fifth time. We should probably deny them because they've tried so many times. No, they've actually been really helpful. And they're like, yes, she got it. Let's go. Okay, let's move to the next level. And they help me at each subsequent level. So that's all to say that don't think the inspectors are out to get you and ask lots and lots of questions. All right, moving right into number two. Number two is understand your flavors before selling. And I want to kind of break this down a little bit. When you're thinking about what type of kombucha flavors you're going to be brewing, think about really the base first. What type of tea does it need? Now I'm going to put in a lot of examples obviously of what I've done or what didn't didn't work and this one was an interesting approach to this. I ended up choosing three different flagship flavors which I'll get into that here in a minute. I ended up picking three flagship flavors which I would always offer and they happen to have three different base teas. Now That might not seem like a big deal, but from someone just starting off, I was a home brewer. I was brewing in one gallon glass jars. I was moving into a commercial space. I had no idea what I was doing at the time and learning how to create larger batches at once. This was really, really big learning curve for me. Well, when I started making these teas and trying to keep up with demand, I realized that I had to have different batches of each tea in order to make that kombucha. Many brewers that I know actually use a base tea that is all the same, meaning, for example, I know a a very common one is black tea and green tea mixed together, and then they infuse for that secondary fermentation or infusion of flavor after that first fermentation is completed. Whereas what I was doing was I, for example, took green tea as one and I fermented that as a base and did a full fermentation on that, and then I had butterfly pea flour and I fermented that in a separate vessel. And so the problem that I came into was what if when I started to sell that one of those flavors was selling more than the other one? So for example, my green tea base is my grapefruit rosemary and my butterfly pea flower is my ginger brew. Well, my ginger brew was selling a lot faster than my green was. And what I mean by this is, is now I have a problem with brewing vessels because on brewing day, I went ahead and I refilled up with the green tea and then the other one with the butterfly pea tea. And unfortunately, I need another vessel to brew butterfly pea tea and I don't have that. Whereas if I 
had decided from the beginning if I was just going to do a same base of green tea, black tea combined, I could make larger volumes of that and then flavor it separately come time the infusion component of the brewing cycle. I hope that isn't too wordy, but it, it was extremely difficult for me starting off because I only had three brewing vessels, aka fermenters, to brew with. And so when I had to use another type of tea, I had to think about, well, shoot, if I sell all of that really fast, I won't have this type of tea available for X amount more weeks. And that ran into my supply and demand. Now, looking back, I really enjoy my flavors, and it's something that I pride myself on, and I don't think that I messed up per se. However, looking back at those very beginning days, had I just had a combined tea base and understood what flavors I was going to use based off of the base, if that makes sense, um, I feel like I could have been better at supply and demand. And that might be something you consider. And again, not something that all brewers do. I know a lot of people that use different tea bases and different things, but it may limit you and your ability to supply and demand certain flavors that you're trying to achieve. And again, I'm just going off of my own experiences. I can't assume that you'd be at the same place as me. I started off with little to no money. I moved into a shared commercial space that had very limited space. I had one gallon glass jars in the past and I was trying just slightly larger seven gallon fermenter trays that I was using. And you might have enough money to get larger conical fermenters and have a larger space to yourself. But again, just still consider the types of teas or the base that you're using so that you're able to supply right away what your consumer wants because you don't have that much to play around with at the beginning and especially as you're learning some things could go wrong with a batch but I'm getting carried away here you understand get to know your flavors ahead of time I always suggest just trying to stay within a couple of flavors I always found a sweet spot at three flavors just because it's something that I learned to be extremely consistent with. I got better and better with each batch and then every once in a while I came out with something seasonal or something like that. But if you have too many things going on at once, the probability of you messing up a batch and losing the little that you have right at the beginning is sometimes uh, too much uh, too much risk, at least for me. And so I started off with three, I stayed with three, and that worked really well. All right, number three, hopefully number two made sense. I know I'm a little wordy, but number three is how do you plan on moving liquids? This is a really big one for me and something that I definitely did not consider moving into the commercial space. So let's start off again setting the scene. I'm moving into my first shared commercial kitchen space and I have another episode talking about how to find the best commercial kitchen space for you and I rented. That's my own personal experience. And so when I first moved in, my brewing space happened to be downstairs and the kitchen was upstairs. And I just thought, cool, this is wonderful. The space was there, but I didn't really take the time to evaluate how that space could work best for me, especially in regards to moving liquids. So when I move there, again, I have my one gallon glass jars at home. I can move those pretty easily, but I have now scaled to seven gallon trays. They're called symbiosis fermenters and seven gallons by itself is pretty, pretty big. And if we're talking about hot tea, that's another component as well. Well, being downstairs, I had to move from the stove that tea downstairs. And I'm just going to say that I royally sucked at this. And it's not something that if ever an inspector walked in that I would encourage any brewer or really anybody in the food industry to do. But what I did was I actually lugged for a couple of weeks hot tea from the stove upstairs downstairs. 
And luckily, I never tripped down the stairs, but oh my goodness, the risk was insane. Not to mention, I'm liable for myself. If anything happened, I had insurance that would have probably wiped out my business at that point because I probably would have been severely hurt with hot tea and stairs. Do not recommend. So I had to do something different and I wish I could say that me going up and down the stairs was the reason why I moved all my brewing upstairs, but actually it was because the flooring downstairs was not level that my brews kept spilling everywhere. (laughs) Again, guys, I'm just doing all the wrong things, but hey, that's why I'm here. I'm sharing all this stuff. Um, But I moved my brews upstairs to the kitchen area so there wasn't as much moving of the liquid and there definitely wasn't any different levels to go up and down which I am so grateful for but thinking about how you're going to be moving your liquid is a huge component because at this point I'm guessing that if you're in a similar space and you're going from that home brewer to commercial brewing that you might not have a pump to move your liquids and so as you scale you are the one responsible for moving the liquid where it needs to go. So some tips, evaluate your space and how far of a distance it is from your fermenters to whatever heating source that you're doing the tea. Some people have electric brew kettles, other people use the stove. I know for me when I first started off, basically I would use the stove with very large pots and then I would transfer that into a tray and I would put cold water into it knowing that that tea inside of my fermenter was not as hot as it was in the pot from before and so when I needed to transfer that fermenter to my fermenting space wherever that might be it was a lot less hot so if it were to spill it's not going to scald me now one thing that was extremely helpful and that I use every day is a trusty old rolling cart it's not old it's new I got it on restaurant.com Websterant there we go Websterant.com Little cart, easy going. I put the fermenter on top. Again, I'm using trays, so it was a little bit easier to balance on top of that. I put it on the cart and I rolled it across the kitchen to my brewing space. Game changer. So nice and something that I wasn't having to be responsible for lugging it up and down because let's be honest, it is extremely heavy to move any type of heavy liquid past a certain amount of gallons. Going back to me talking about going up and down the stairs, I have since moved to a brewery, a beer brewery, and up until literally yesterday, I was using pots on the stove and they have now an elevator, not just the stairs. So I would use an elevator and a cart, not just me simply carrying down my trays like I was doing the first go around, but I had a more secure way of going up and down the different levels with my tea but I just got electric brew kettles this past week woohoo so now I'm able to brew in the same space that my fermenters are so it's going to be a lot easier to transfer liquid from one place to the other but definitely something to consider as you're moving into your space All right, we are going to jump into number four, which we're going to transition a little bit more into the selling component. So now you've set up your space, you've got your licenses in order, and now number four is going slow with markets. I'm assuming that potentially you might be like me in this space in which when you first get going and you're selling, your selling model revolves around some type of a retail, small retail location. And for many people, it starts off at a farmer's market. It's a great place to meet your community. You're getting the top dollar for what you are selling versus going straight to wholesale where you would sell directly at grocery stores and things like that. And there's a lot more hoops to jump through to get that. But you start off with farmers markets. And when I say go slow, I'm specifically talking about not taking on more markets than you can handle at the stage that you are in. 
What I did when I first started is I signed up for three different markets, not ever been a part of any type of market season. And I didn't really have my process of production down quite yet. So I came to my first market. I was all excited. I had a Saturday and a Sunday market. I sold out all of my kombucha in the first day. Now, you would think that I wouldn't bring as much kombucha because I don't have more for the Sunday market. No, I didn't think about that. I just brought it all. I thought no one's going to buy all of this, but if they do, woohoo. And I had to pull out of my Sunday market because I had no product to sell at all. Kind of embarrassing. And also, a lot of markets ask you to pay in advance. So I lost a little bit of money because I didn't plan accordingly. What I would suggest is taking the time to research the different markets in your area. And maybe you only do have one market. I had a couple in my area, but I knew because of where I wanted to open a business one day and the community that I wanted to be a part of, that there was one particular area in Wisconsin that I really wanted to focus on. And that's where I decided to go ahead and pursue full time essentially and drop out of the other markets. And it was unfortunate because I did want to participate in these other markets. But what I did was I told the coordinators of these other markets that I'm a first year producer. I'm learning supply and demand. And I signed up for basically once a month. And I said that may or may not happen, but I will still pay for that date. So that worked out really well for me because I focused on one market. I built great clientele at that market. I knew I would always have product for that market. And then once a month when the these other two markets happened to come up on my calendar, I was able to say, hey, you know what? I do have a little bit more I produced or hey, I'm getting better at my craft. I can bring this much to this market, but I can't do this one next market. And I will say the coordinators of those farmers markets were extremely, extremely understanding. And I was able to do my best for my first summer. So I would definitely recommend going slow on your first farmers market season and potentially just doing one and getting really good at it. So going along the theme of the farmer's markets, I'm going to transition into number five. And number five, this is kind of humorous, but oh my goodness, so true, is feel confident in your product and prepare for people to not like something no matter what you say. Okay, other brewers or really any type of food or beverage or anyone that goes to a farmer's market that is in front of people every single weekend, you will understand this. No matter how hard you try, or how much you try to convince someone, there is always going to be someone that does not appreciate what you make. And it's so hard to not take it personally because at this point, you have touched every single bit of the process. And when they consume, especially something as intimate as a beverage, and they don't like it, or in our kombucha sense, they do the kombucha tang face, they make that, ooh, that's sour, that type of face. It's hard to not feel utterly crushed when someone is like, nope, definitely don't like it. Or they just are like, ew. They literally say, ew, that's definitely happened. I'm actually going to create another episode of all the reactions that I've gotten negative about my kombucha (laughs) because it's real and it's going to happen. But what I want you to just hear is I want you to be so confident in your product. And that's something that I really had to exercise the muscle on because when I saw people or heard people not responding well to the kombucha, I wanted to apologize for it. And I just was, oh, this batch wasn't as great. Or you know what? I'm going to tweak this for next time. No, don't say that. Don't even start there. That's something that I had to nix from my vocabulary is just all this talk about, oh, I'm so sorry. Don't apologize for this, okay? Feel confident in your flavoring, in your pricing. And know for every one person who doesn't like 
your product. There are probably over a hundred people that do like your product and they want to know and buy more from you. And you know, as kombucha creators, we are also educators. Kombucha is still on the rise. It is so encouraging, I will say, at markets. I am getting more and more people that approach my table because they're excited that there's kombucha because they know what it is. But there are still so many people out there that are like, what's kombucha? What's kombachi? Kombachu? You know, all these things. And they come up to the table and right away you know that you might not be making a sale and they may or may not like it but at the same time you're educating them about something that they can put in their bodies that they can feel their best with and potentially they might come back or you'll never see it but you're planting the seed and I think that's more important thing to think about is that you are confident in your product you like your product and people will see that and the right people will come back and you're going to continue to build that awesome awesome foundation that only you and your business can do. Okay, we are halfway. I hope you guys are doing great. Hopefully this is helping. I'm not super wordy. You know what? Screw it. I know that I'm really wordy, but this is my verbal journal. This is just who I am. It's a strength of mine. I'm not going to call it a weakness anymore. Same thing with being confident with my product. I'm going to be confident in bringing these to you. So we're going to go on to number six. Number six is how much time it takes to set up and clean up. Who preach? Okay, this is ridiculous because I had no idea how much time it was going to take me to set up a space nor clean it up. There is a saying in the brewing space that someone in the brewing space is like a glorified custodian, which not not bashing on custodians whatsoever. However, a lot of the components to brewing is to make sure that all of the utensils and all of the vessels that you're using are sanitized so that you can make the best product to sell. And for me, I had no idea what that was going to incorporate. When you're brewing at home, I don't think about gloves. Yeah, I wash my hands. I'm not weird. I'm not licking my fingers or anything like that. However, when I'm in a commercial brewing space, I got to use gloves. Gloves cost money, by the way. They're like 10 cents a piece for the ones I like. Ooh, okay. But cleaning up a space, you are sharing most likely, at least for me, I'm sharing a space that has to be completely cleaned up at the end. And for me, the kombucha dance goes like this. I got to set up my space. It takes about 30 minutes. I'm getting better every time. I need to sanitize the brew bag that has the tea in it. And then I got to steep the tea in a pot that has to be clean. Then I got to clean out the pot that had the tea in it. And then I got to wash the fermenter that had the old kombucha. And then I got to sanitize that fermenter to put in the new kombucha. And then I got to move the kombucha downstairs and I got to clean up the kitchen. And then I got to transfer in the lines and sanitize the lines into the keg. And then I want to fill up some bottles. So I got to wash the bottles. And then I got to sanitize the bottles and the caps. I feel like I need my hip hop track. Who's got the bass for me? (laughs) But now you get it. I didn't even know that cleaning and sanitizing were two very different steps, but very important steps and one that you are doing constantly. So for me, it was an awakening of knowing my time management skills because if I said, I need to go brew a batch of kombucha, go ahead and slap on another 45 minutes to an hour for setup and cleanup. And that's something that I didn't plan on. I'm sure you all thought of that, but that is just something that I didn't think. And it's very helpful to know in advance because as I'm sharing commercial kitchen space and I say, hey, oh, I need to be out of there by 9 a.m. Well, I'm done brewing the tea, but I still need 35 to 45 minutes to clean up. I have gotten in a pickle a couple of times actually I did have one chef that came in he's like you're still here and I'm like I'm really sorry and I put on some music and I try to smile he did not like that but I made it up to him later gave him some kombucha we're friends now but at the same time I have to be respectful of the space and know my times speaking of time let's roll into number seven so number seven on our top 10 list is the ferments don't stop fermentation is truly a freaking beautiful thing is it not but 
unlike other foods and beverages where you put in X amount of time to get X amount of product, kombucha, each batch has its own personality and its own timing that it requires to mature to that right kombucha tang that we all know and love. And to get that, oh my goodness, you're, you're going to get to know that rhythm that your brews are in. And every brewer has a different system and a different timing system. And although I say, yes, my ferments are on a two-week schedule, it is not very uncommon to have a brew slow down or speed up compared to the other ones. And I can't always bank on having all of my ferments ready to brew a new cycle on the same day. We know that there are so many factors that go into that perfect brew. One, mainly being the temperature, and that can fluctuate depending on what type of space that you're in. When I was in my first space, I didn't always have the control of the thermometer. There wasn't even heat there. That's for another day. I've already talked about that in another episode. But the tea base might even slow down one compared to the other one. Or really, like I said, they already have their own personalities. One just might slow down because it feels like it, and you just have to be prepared to kind of go at the will of the ferments. I understand at this stage in your journey, as you might just be jumping into the commercial brewing world, well, first, welcome, congratulations, and I truly mean that. I'm so excited that you're here. There's space for everyone, right? However, you are right now that one-person show, that one-person band, and you have to do all the things on your own unless you have enough money at this point to hire someone. And so having that timing be different sometimes for different ferments it is pretty tricky, and it can also put a lot of strain onto your schedule and really your life. Because if there's a certain brew that you planned on brewing on Monday, however, Tuesdays are maybe your day to be with your family or that you need to go to a certain meeting, but you can't brew until the next couple of days, you will have to be extremely flexible, especially in those early on days to address the brews when they are ready because we all know we don't want to speed up fermentation or cut them short. And so that is something that I would greatly ask you to consider and one that I am still trying to be flexible on. I love to have a set routine and a set schedule, but even this week, usually Thursdays are my day where I'm in the brewery and I'm flavoring, but there's a couple of brews that weren't just ready yet and so I had to wait. So I'm recording this podcast today and I'm at home. So it's it's a little bit different and hopefully you still have that flexibility in your schedule to do that, but it's definitely something to consider if you're thinking about moving into this space. Phew, okay, we are almost there. We are on number nine. We're... <laughs> okay, you know when that DJ goes like when something's wrong, something like that? This is me jumping in. This is Lydia a couple days later because real life, I didn't edit on the same day that I recorded this podcast. But did anyone catch... <laughs> I said, okay, y'all, we're just almost there on number nine. And I totally bypassed number eight entirely. No, just me? I mean, this is a top 10 list and I definitely gave you nine. (laughs) So uh, of course, number eight is one of the most important. But number eight is to brew insurance starter. So when I say starter, I'm talking about the mother SCOBY, that symbiotic culture of bacteria and yeast. And I am meaning not the pellicle, I am meaning the liquid. A lot of times people confuse, and I myself very much confused this at the beginning stages, that the SCOBY, that mother starter, is the liquid itself versus the pellicle. Although I do include sometimes the pellicle in my brews because it is saturated in that yeast, but really it's that starter liquid that is so important. But when I say brew insurance starter, that means that 
you want to have almost like a separate vessel full of starter in case anything goes wrong. And if you've been following me for a long time, I dedicated an entire episode to when I had to essentially dump all of my brews at one time and I had to basically start from scratch and I didn't have as much insurance starter or enough starter to go into all of my restarting batches. Because all of my batches went wrong at one time, I couldn't reserve what we've been taught since the home brewing days is to reserve a little bit of liquid from your past brew to then go into the next one. Well, what happens when you're trying out a batch and either the flavoring goes wrong, it spoils, it molds, or for me, there were fruit flies and you have to dump the entire batch and you don't have enough starter to go to the next batch have insurance starter and that looks different for everyone for me I for a seven gallon fermenter I put in 15% as the starter and so that's roughly about half a gallon for me And how I maintain that is I basically have a separate fermenter that has been dedicated towards that mother this entire time. And because now I'm just almost like, I felt like my luck was running out, especially with the fruit fly extravaganza, I have now created insurance on insurance. So just in case my fermenter that's full of mother, so basically just aged, almost like a kombucha vinegar, okay? Um, I now have another two and a half gallons of insurance on insurance starter. So in case my starter somehow goes bad spills whatever I have another insurance you can never have too much insurance yes (laughs) so I would encourage you to look at how much you're brewing and think about how much insurance starter you can have and maybe even considering if you do have the space to have insurance on the insurance to make sure that you never run out of starter and I'm really excited to announce that in future episode coming soon that I have been able to double my production a little teaser into a future episode but basically I now have to when I get more fermenters that have more space I now have to create a larger space for my insurance starter and so I am recreating everything that I've done with my starter that I'm going to be sharing in a future episode if you're interested so again teaser okay now we're gonna jump back in as if I never edited this section and I'm just gonna go roll right into number nine (laughs) this is real life all right let's go and number nine is how to plan for one move ahead And this actually can fit into so many different avenues of your business. So let's talk about space. When you think about your space, let's say you're you're renting somewhere. Do you have enough space for that next level of scale? For example, I started off with an area where I kept boxes of bottles when I went to go bottling. However, the demand got so large that I needed to order not just a few boxes, but a whole pallet of bottles. And I didn't have space in my area to put a pallet of bottles. And I had to get a storage unit separately just for my bottles because I didn't think in advance of that space accommodating bottles. Same thing with the cooler space. We know that we can never have enough cooler space, right, kombucha brewers? Is your cooler space going to fit all the bottles that you're going to be bottling next week and bottles that you didn't sell at the market from the previous week? That's a firsthand experience. I'm just, again, keeping it real. Is it wise to buy something expensive as you're going into winter season and you don't have as much income coming in? Again, personal example. See, I'm telling you, I'm really good at these. 
thinking and planning one move ahead is going to save you time as well as stress and hopefully a lot of money. I'm going to give another oops. I've already been sharing a bunch of oopses that I did, but one such example that I felt like rippled through my whole business was when I first debuted shrubs and I didn't realize how shrubs were going to take to the market. I didn't know if people would like them, but one weekend I went like gangbusters on shrubs. It's like, oh yeah, I'm doing great. They love them. Cool. Wonderful. I'm so glad. So I went to go label some more shrubs and I realized, oh my goodness, I'm running out of labels. Uh Uh-oh, just kidding. I'm out of labels. And for me to have to go order labels, I would have to wait for the labels to then be printed, which takes 10 business days with the company that I was working with. And then since I sold so many shrubs, I had to make more shrubs and I realized that I was completely out of sugar because I wasn't thinking of that next step up. And so had I looked back thinking if I would have sold this amount of shrubs, I should already be working on the labels for that next batch and have those ready. And if it's at a certain inventory, I need to go ahead and order them regardless if I think I'm going to use them next week or not. Same thing with the sugar. I went ahead and ordered double the amount of what I planned on using during that month just in case that if I went gangbusters again and everything was great that I could plan for making more shrubs that month and I would have all the materials that I would need. So perhaps this means your space. So again, going back to your space and yours just starting off thinking about, okay, I can put three fermenters here. I have three fermenters. Fantastic. Okay, can it fit six when it's time to scale? Can I fit more than one box here in my cooler space? Oh my goodness, I'm going to use kegs soon. I didn't even think about kegs. Where can kegs go? And again, I'm not just trying to tell you this like you should do this. This is all things that I came upon and I had to fix in the moment. And I'm trying to help you so that as you're thinking of that next step ahead, you can potentially avoid certain things that could bring your business or production to a complete halt. And you can keep going because you just thought one step ahead. And that leads me to number 10, and that's going to finish up the 10 things I wish I knew before starting a kombucha business. And that is the community is going to rally behind you. They will. It's a fact. If you feel so passionate about your product, which I hope you do, I hope you're excited about brewing as much as I am, and I hope it brings you joy. The people who are going to consume your product will see that in you, and they are going to rally behind you and your mission. And along with that, people are going to come from out of nowhere coming to help you with random things that you never thought that they could help you with. I've had people come up numerous times, hey, here's my business card. I work in this. When you get to this point in your business, I would love to help you do this. Wow, what a network of people that you're now exposed to and those people want to see you succeed. It is just so encouraging to see and something that I know you will encounter if you're in the business for the right reasons. Like seriously, it is so fun to see each Saturday certain families or people come up and they say, hey Lydia, how are you? Can I get my usual? And I know what their usual is because they've come so many times and they're just so excited about the product and who we are and where we're going. Oh, it's just so good. It gives me all the feels and I, I just want that for you and your business. So hopefully if you're, you know, at the beginning stages and you're in the licensing and you're just feeling like, oh, this is so difficult. I don't know what I'm doing. Just remember that there are people out there that are going to enjoy your product they're going to love who you are and there's gonna be a space that is filled because you are entering that space so keep going especially if you're in that beginning stage Phew, we did it everyone. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to listen into today's episode. If this is your first time, again, welcome. I'm so glad that you're here. I hope you join us back again for another episode. And if you've been here for me since the beginning, the teacher turned alchemist, now the Living Full Kombucha podcast, oh, you guys are amazing. Thank you so much for joining me on this amazing journey. 
I'm always eager to meet anyone. So if you want to reach out via message, I would love to talk with you if you have any questions or anything. But my email is livingfullkombucha at gmail.com. Our website is livingfullkombucha.com. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook as well. And if it's not too much, I would love, I've always wanted to say smash the like button on YouTube. I don't have a YouTube. But if you could go, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, if you could do me a huge favor and leave a five-star review, that would be absolutely amazing. I feel again that kombucha really isn't represented in the podcast sphere is that a word and I am just looking to come alongside other brewers and meet other people and bring a community together that I feel is just very underrepresented here so if you can do me a favor leave a review that would be absolutely outstanding it really helps us connect with more people but in the meantime until next time's episode be well and cheers